0: This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager, Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host,
1: Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to talk again to Brandon Munro, the CEO of Bannerman Resources. We are going to be talking about the restart of Cigar Lake, the 20% cut on estimated production in Kazakhstan for 2022 and the implications for the spot market. Besides, next month, there is the World Nuclear Association Symposium, which is usually when sellers meet buyers and start negotiations for new contracts. This year, the symposium will be online. There won't be a physical attendance, but we will find out from Brandon what to expect. So without further ado, Brandon, welcome again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, very much, Marcelo. It's really great to be back on your show. Fantastic. So, last month, the market was surprised by Chemical's announcement that they were going to be restarting Cigar Lake. I really didn't get where the surprise came from, as I have said a couple of times during my presentation at the Alzheimer's conference, that it was highly expected. And I also mentioned this on our last podcast. And even Chemical said that the plan was to restart the mine in 2020. So, In your opinion, Are they really going forward with this restart in a few days? And if they are, what do you think the impact is going to be? Well, first of all, Marcelo, look, I totally agree with you. There was a little bit of
0: surprise out there, but I think that was more in the category of unmet, hopeful expectations that Cigar Lake would stay off for a bit longer. Of course, it was always possible that it would stay off longer. Cameco had, I think, enough justification to keep it on care and maintenance for longer if that had suited them. And there was always the possibility of COVID uh, containment measures up in Saskatchewan and Northern Territories of Canada failing. But, You know, we need to go back to the original announcement. They initially put it on care and maintenance only for four weeks to see how things went. And in our discussion way back then and in some of the materials that I put out into the public domain, my initial expectation was four months. So this has now been six months that it's offline. So if you're looking at it from a supply perspective and a uranium investors perspective, that's two months longer than what I thought it was going to be. And as you've mentioned, it was bang on what you thought the ultimate suspension would be. I just think it's a, what we can take out of it that's really positive, Marcelo, is it's it's a real insight into where Cameco's mind is at when it comes to supply certainty. And I think their decision to bring Cigar Lake back on is a stronger indicator as you're going to see that there are deep concerns about supply in 2020, but also into 2021. And they want to make sure as best as they can that they're insulating their business from that risk. You know, you've got to remember, as you know, that uh, the people listening might not. Cameco is as well-placed as anybody to understand this market, apart from being a long-term dominant commercial player in this sector. They're also integrated across the fuel cycle with their conversion business, with their trading business. They're very well plugged into everything that goes on in the sector through their customer relationships. So when I see actions by Cameco that suggest to me that they're more concerned about supply availability than they are about potentially holding out for the price to go up another couple of dollars, that speaks volumes to the macro as you and I understand it. And for me, that's a, a real indicator that investors and customers should be latching onto
1: yeah that that's true, Brandon. and interesting to notice that even UXC said in yesterday's report that a supply squeeze might be emerging. And I don't recall having read such a bullish report from them ever exactly
0: and when you think about where uxc fits into the market and trade tech as well for example they are able to flex their narrative with what's actually happening so a few months ago whilst they might not have been predicting as you and i have that this supply pinch is developing now they think well we've uh, we've got enough evidence that we can adjust the narrative and essentially what they're doing now is they're playing a bit of catch-up. Perhaps they need more evidence than you and I to predict this sort of uh, developments in the sector, or perhaps they prefer not to believe it until it's right in front of them. But uh, they are still the dominant consultants that advise the fuel buyers so it's coming at a time when fuel buyers will start to be having their own doubts from what they're looking at and who they're talking to and what they're seeing and now the predominant advisor that is board quality if you like you know taking uxc advice is a little bit like buying buying ibm no one's ever going to get sacked (laughs) following uxc's advice and uh, now they're saying is a supply pinch developing as you noticed
1: good good no uh, uh-huh. Gazaton Prom has said that they were going to exercise discipline in the production side, and um, they have proven time and again that they were not just talking the talk, but they were also walking the walk. Last week, they announced an extension to the production cuts to 2022, and as expected, they they said they were not going to try to make up for the loss in production that happened this year and probably next year too. This decision should remove another 5,500 tons of uranium from the market in 2022, which is a very important year as most of the long-term contracts are due in 2025 and hence should be renewed towards the end of 2022. So what do you make of this decision?
0: Well, I think it's very important. It's been glossed over a little bit, but it's very important for a couple of reasons. The first one is surely this is now the final nail in the bear case coffin where that bear case scenario is that because Adam Prom's is going to come out and flood the market because they're happy with their market. Margins at thirty-five or forty dollars a pound, and they want to keep everyone else out. They've now seen exactly what happens when a commodity price jumps from circa $25 to circa $32, and their cost base doesn't change. They're seeing that pure margin hit their bottom line, and their management and their shareholders, including the Sovereign Wealth Fund, who maintains a 75% interest in Kazatomprom, they obviously like what they see. So that uh, criticism of this uranium macro, which I've always disagreed with both from a supply availability perspective and also a commercial logic perspective. Surely that's now the end of that um, attempt to undermine these very strong uranium macro that, that seems to be obvious to me. And I think also to yourself. So that's the first point. The, The second point is that groups like going back to UXC, groups like UXC and trade tech, and for that matter, the utilities themselves who've got the resources to model this sector, they don't make opinion-based calls on what this production is going to be. So for 2022, they might think to themselves, well, gee, there's a good chance that Kazatomprom is going to extend their 20% supply cuts, but they just don't put that in their models. So they will run out the full production in 2022. And this announcement well ahead of time now gives them the ability to change their models. And this is 14.3 million pounds of yellow cake that's coming out of the sector. So that's another. 10 10% that will add to the deficit. So many of these consultants and firms who are modeling supply and demand for 2022 would have been, depending on their assumptions on MacArthur River and other production centers, they might have been coming in at a moderate deficit, uh, maybe 10 million pound deficit. Now it's uh, doubled potentially more. And this will, combined with the types of uh, narrative that we're seeing come out of those consultants, this will certainly serve to provide an additional wake-up call to the sector and the buyers in particular. And Now, the other thing that's um, really quite interesting about this is we need to remember that Kazatomprom's decision to reduce its production by 20% in 2022, in many respects, it actually affects their partners in the various joint ventures they've got in Kazakhstan more than it affects themselves. Um, they are quite comfortable with their sales at the moment. There was an interview from Mr. Permatov, the CEO of Kazatom Prom, that's on Kazatom Prom's website, and I know you saw it, Marcelo, where he gave some really interesting background as to the challenges that they've faced with their sales over the last several years. And he compared 2017, where they undersold about 20% of their production, to the last couple of years where they've been able to sell all of their production and therefore they haven't been an overhang as such in the marketplace and they haven't been building up unhelpful amounts of inventory. So they're quite comfortable to reduce their own proportion of that production by 20% because they can easily match that off against sales and it actually makes life a bit easier for them given how dominant they are in this sector. But for their partners that might be a really different matter. So we talked already about Cameco being concerned about supply going forward. Cameco is counting on those pounds from their inkai joint venture in Kazakhstan. You've also got Orano who they're counting on those pounds and bear in mind that the pounds that they're losing out of their CatCo joint venture in Kazakhstan in 2022, those pounds were probably earmarked to repay the uranium loan that's due to Cameco in 2023. So that's now really ratcheted up the pressure on Orano. The same can be said for Uranium One, the same can be said for some of the traders that have um, got minority interests in joint ventures. So the- the, the flexibility that Kazatomprom have got in their own marketing channels to operate off a lower production base. It's not right to assume that that flexibility just flows through to their joint venture partners. And that's where you'll start to see a number of different forms of squeeze happen in this sector.
1: Cool, cool. Now, if if we look at the spot markets, um, even though cigar late production will not go to the spot market, uh, Casatron Prance production will be severely impacted this year and probably next. There's also a reduction in production in Namibia. Two important mines are going off line next year, but the spot market is softening again. Uh, It's coming close to the $30 uh, mark. What are your thoughts about it? Well, I think the first thing
0: is you need, as an investor, if that's uh, most of the folks listening in to what we're discussing today, as an investor, you need to understand why you're looking at the spot market. There's no question that it is a cue for short-term investment decisions. So people who are trading stocks, who are opening and closing short-term positions in stocks, they look to the spot market because that's the visible, transparent measure of what uranium's doing. But for anybody who is taking a position in this sector for the medium term, six or more months, possibly a couple of years. Uh, it's those types of investors who understand the extraordinary gains that can be obtained as this deep bear market finally reasserts itself and turns back into more of a bull market. And many of those investors talked to me because they were Bannerman shareholders back in the last boom and made you know, incredible returns in Bannerman and other companies as well, such as Paladin. Now, the spot market over the next few months doesn't change that picture whatsoever. In fact, a lower spot price helps the one to two to three year outlook for how this bull market is going to develop. And the reason it does that is whilst the spot market price is low, it creates both the impetus and the justification for these continuing supply cuts. So if the spot price had gone to $50 in May or June, there would have been a lot more pressure on Cameco to turn Cigar Lake back on earlier for Kazadimprom to try and resume their operations in Kazakhstan. And, uh... I think in Namibia, those mines have been trying as hard as they can to operate at full production, and they're just uh, subject to the usual disruption that you get from various COVID measures. So it probably doesn't make much difference in Namibia. But equally, Kazatomprom, if they were seeing a market signal, i.e. price of 45 or $50 a pound in the spot market right now, they wouldn't be curtailing 2022 production in quite the same way. So on the one hand, a spot price that seems to have stabilised in the range of 31 to $33, it's disappointing for investors who are looking for catalysts and looking for queues or perhaps looking for short-term positions in this sector. But for anyone who's got a one to two to three-year view, this is the making of a bull market of the similar intensity to what we had in 2005, six. Seven. It's these factors that create that extreme volatility, which is what most investors are really looking to uranium for.
1: Brilliant. Uh, if I may, Brendan, I uh, just would like to read uh, one phrase from yesterday's UXC report. And They say potential buyers should refrain from becoming too comfortable, as market fundamentals indicate that a real supply pinch could emerge, could emerge sooner than expected. This is UXC's uh, report, so you, you, you can imagine if they are saying that, what the other ones are not saying. Now, changing a little bit the subject. Next month is that time of the year in which buyers meet sellers during the WNA symposium. This year is going to be a bit different as. The whole symposium will be online. Brandon, you're you're a very active participant of the WNA. You were involved with the groups there. So tell us. What shall we expect from this year's conference? And do you expect the negotiations for new contracts to start after the WNA like it it happens traditionally?
0: Well, I don't, Marcelo. And um, your audience, uh, I'm sure, understand that you've also been quite active and uh, been up to London and experienced the WNA Symposium firsthand. And as you know, Marcelo, it's a very vibrant event where there's a huge number of formal and informal meetings around the conference during the conference and there's also it's used as an opportunity to make big announcements so many fuel buyers they will delay making final purchasing decisions or procurement strategy implementation until they've got up there and just seen, right, what has everyone had to say? Is there an announcement coming out? What can we look forward to over the next year? Because this is like the night of nights type thing. So that is now completely different. I think w have made a very wise choice not to try and just emulate that in an online scenario. They've gone for something quite different in the form of, of a strategic e-forum. And that's, uh, for people who haven't seen it yet, that's a 75-minute high-level panel each day for three days. So it's an opportunity to talk about just the key issues that are being uh, faced in the sector, and it's very much a look-forward agenda. What do we need to do, or what what are the opportunities in nuclear power? So all of those interactions are totally uh, missing from this type of forum. So on the one hand, that is clearly going to delay contracting decisions, um, and clearly going to delay that though any of those decisions that were waiting on just getting the latest from the sector before uh, people come back home to their companies and their boards, and they say, "I think we should do this." But bear in mind that the utilities are also really quite distracted at the moment. Um, fuel buyers typically have a wide range of jobs, not just sitting on a screen talking to traders buying uranium. Um, there's, they're, they're quite integrated. Uh, many of the fuel buyers that I talk to are, are nuclear engineers with a lot of experience who, if there's a, a reload or a refuel of reactors, they're right in the thick of that. And if you try and talk to them during a reload, you can't speak to them for two weeks because that's the intensity of one of these exercises. So the utilities are facing increased challenges because of COVID-19 just in their normal operating business. And we should remind everyone that uh, nuclear power output has been relatively unaffected by um, lacking electricity demand during this whole event, just because of its sheer resiliency and the fact that nuclear power plants can continue operating very effectively, even on reduced personnel load, and they're made for social distancing because a lot of nuclear power plants basically operate as laboratories anyway. So that's the, the context. Next in which WNA Symposium won't go ahead. If we had a situation where the utilities were really gearing up for a new round of procurement, the contract cycle was just starting, these sort of warnings from UXC had already been in their ears and on their boardroom tables for a few months now. If it was that type of situation and WNA Symposium was cancelled, I think that'd be devastating for expectations in this sector for the next six to 12 months months. But it just isn't. like I think if we'd had symposium in London, given all of those other factors, challenging utilities and creating reasons not to
1: procure right now, I'm
0: just not sure it would have made that much difference.
1: Got it. Got it. Brandon. any news regarding Iran sanctions and, and waivers? If I'm not mistaken, in, in a couple of days ends the, the waivers, right?
0: Yeah, you're quite right. August uh, 27th is when the final waiver either needs to be extended or it'll expire and that is the waiver that enables international companies and states to support the Bashir nuclear power plant that was built by Rosatom, the Russian conglomerate. Right. Any news there? No, I haven't seen anything. Um, it's about now when the announcement would normally be made, a couple of days before the expiry, and we've got the additional complexity in this case Because the US or the Trump administration through Mike Pompeo have gone to the, written to the Security Council of the UN and said that they want to invoke the snapback provisions under the JCPOA, um, which is the Iran nuclear deal that was signed back in 2015. Um, this is a real interesting development from geopolitics perspective, because first of all, all of the Security Council members, bar the US and so far Dominican Republic, have rejected that. They've said no, no the US unilaterally withdrew from the JCPOA back in 2018 and therefore doesn't have the right to bring on the snapback. And now what could develop from here gets really interesting and uh, the ramifications have been such that even Bolton has come out and said, who is probably the most hawkish person on Iran that's been in that US administration for a decade, um, he's come out and said, this is a slippery slope the US should not be going down this path. It puts their veto rights at long term risk. And that's because the way that the snapback works here is that the Security Council can now say, no, we're not going to go with the snapback and we're going to extend uh, the JCPOA obligations. And then it would be up for the US to use their veto. Um, so it gives the US now or any other party at the Security Council a veto right. So, look, that's probably a lot more detail than our audience are looking for. The point of talking about that is we've got an extremely dynamic situation and the Security Council is meeting on Thursday. Um, basically the day when the waiver needs to be extended. So is the ex- uh, waiver extension going to be used as a tool here to try and extract some sort of additional benefit? Um, so there's a lot of volatility around this situation in many different ways. So I, it also plays into another key thematic that's occurring in the US uranium sector, which is the Russian suspension agreement. And uh, the Department of Commerce have set an internal drop-dead date of October the 4th to have that resolved. So as we're getting closer to that date, these geopolitical aspects of this sector are really starting to compound on each other and creating a potentially volatile and significant situation here. Interesting.
1: Now, Brandon, I also believe you have news on Bannerman, right? Could you please fill us in? Just a quick disclaimer to our listeners. I own shares of Bannerman and some accounts I manage also own shares of Bannerman. Having said that, this is not a recommendation and should not be taken as such. People don't know what my objective is, uh, don't know how much I own. You don't know even if I'm selling shares now. So please do your own due diligence. Sorry, Brandon, I I just needed to clarify this.
0: No, I totally get that. I I think I'm going to use that, Marcelo, because I quite often get asked what you're shares I own. (laughs) It can be highly influential for all the wrong reasons. So yeah, we're really excited, Marcelo, because we've now released a scoping study into the Itango 8 development. So for people who might not know Bannerman, we have the Etango Uranium Project in Namibia. We've been working on it since 2006. It's an enormous project of 271 million pounds. And during the period since 2006, we've taken that all the way through definitive feasibility study, optimized that in 2015. We built a pilot plant that we operated for three years. And throughout that journey, we also obtained our environmental and social approvals. So until Quite recently, we had a Tango, as known by the market, with a definitive feasibility study and the potential or the plan to produce 7.2 million pounds of uranium per annum over a 15-year mine life—an enormous giant of a mine—and uh, you know, extremely significant for this sector. What we've now done, Marcelo, is reimagined a Tango in a way that we can reduce its development hurdles. Uh, and enable us to get into production quicker and with more confidence. And the results have been phenomenal. We've been able to, first of all, reduce the throughput by 60%. And that's reduced it down to 8 million tonnes per annum throughput through the plant or the mill, hence why we called it a Tango Eight. Um, but we've been a bit lucky with grade. The grade has kicked up a bit. And so therefore, we have an annual production of three and a half million pounds over a similar mine life. So although we've reduced our throughput and our intensity by 60%, we've only lost half of our production compared to that giant size project. And bear in mind, as you know, three and a half million pounds is still a very, very large mine in this sector and very significant. Absolutely. But the biggest differences have been we've made a huge difference to CapEx. So our pre-production capex on the giant-sized mine was 793 million US, and a lot of people in the market felt that that was too big, um, too big for a single asset company, too big for a company on the stock exchange during a bear market, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What we've been able to do is reduce that all the way down to 254 million US, um, despite only, despite still having half of the production. So it's been a big there. We've also reduced operating costs and we've brought our all-in sustaining operating costs down to $40.90. We've punched a huge hole in sustaining CAPEX, reducing that by $250 million. And our to give you some comparisons, our internal rate of return at a $65 uh, uranium price assumption is 21%. We've got an NPV at that price of $212 million US dollars post-tax. Both of those figures are post-tax. And if we compare that at the same uranium price assumption of $65 to the original giant project, the internal rate of return post-tax uh, was about 9% and the uh, the NPV post-tax uh, was under $90 million. So at that uranium price assumption, it is a much more viable and robust Financial proposition. Um, but what I do really like about what we've done and what I feel really proud about is we've still got the capacity to ramp up as the market increases and as as demand increases and of course as price increase. So this enables us to get into production and somewhere around year 5 or year 6 we'll need to assess the market, talk to utilities, see what sort of contracts can be written at what sort of price and we have the option of then scaling up. We could uh, do a bigger cutback and uh, open up more material beneath the existing and then add another processing train, so potentially increase it all the way up to the um, scale that we had with the larger Atango project that was subjected to a DFS back in two thousand and
1: fifteen. Sounds like pretty good news, Brandon, and and it's happening at the right time too.
0: Yeah, we think it is. We think it is. Um, We've got uh, some work to do moving through the development process. Uh, This is a scoping study. The next step is a PFS and then finally a definitive feasibility study. Uh, But one thing that we're very fortunate with is all of the heavy lifting for those technical studies has already been done at a much larger scale. So normally what you'd need to do moving from a scoping study to a PFS is you'd need to do a lot of resource drilling. Well, we don't need to do any of that. We've got 271 million. Million pounds to play with here, and the mine life, as we've uh, put it in the scoping study, is 51 million pounds. So no resource drilling to be done at all. Normally, you'd you'd then move on to do a lot of metallurgical work. To go from a scoping study to a PFS? Well, as I said, we ran a pilot plant for three years. We've done a huge quantity of metallurgical work, so there's nothing that has to be done there. And then finally, you'd normally start tackling environmental approvals and baseline studies and all of this type of work. And for a big project like this, where we're determined to do it to the highest possible standards, when we did that in between 2009 and 2012, that whole process cost us $2.5 million. And I'm very pleased to say we don't need to do that again. So we can move from uh, scoping study through to PFS and then DFS very quickly for a project of this scale and this size. And it also means that uh, the risk trajectory is flattened enormously. Um, we've done all of this work before just at a larger scale. Now we're just reducing the size and in that respect, reducing the complexity. So it does mean that we'd be in production, Marcelo, uh, by 2025 on the current timetable. And when you look at the WA numbers on supply demand, which I need to have a lot of supply taken out for the types of announcements that we've discussed today, by 2025, there's going to be a a very substantial deficit in this sector, and I think the timing for us to deliver into that with three and a half million pounds per
1: annum of production is just ideal. Fantastic! Uh, congratulations, Brandon, Once again, many thanks for coming to this program and take talking to us. It's always a great pleasure and very informative to talk to you.
0: That's a real pleasure, Marcelo. I, I just uh, really love what you're doing in the sector and all of the interviews that you have. Anyone listening to this interview should definitely go back to your podcast channels and listen to the whole lot. It's really great content. So thank you, Marcelo, for putting it out there and helping all of the investors out there. It's been
1: really great. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Brandon.
0: If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support, and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at malopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.